space, the final frontier. But what does this infamous line from Star Trek actually mean? Does it mean the exploration beyond Earth, our solar system, or beyond? 1957 saw humans make their first forays into space exploration. But in the past decade, the information we have learned and the possibilities of space exploration has expanded. As billionaires head to space in phallic-shaped rockets, the rest of us look up at the sky at night and wonder, is there something better out there? And for astrophysicist Jackie Bell, will she be the first scouser in space? What else is out there? Are there aliens out there or what we'd call aliens? Is there someone who's a little bit like E.T. wandering around looking for a new home? Or are we going to find something that's, you know, very, very much, you know, little tiny tardigrades somewhere else, which could be the very, very beginnings of life? And so I think that is what inspires me as a scientist. I think it's probably what inspires a lot of people to get into science and astronomy and astrophysics and space sciences. And where does our interest in space start? How does the World Museum's planetarium help encourage an interest in space? One of the best things about planetarium is that you can show people the night sky. So you can show them the star patterns, the constellations. Then they can go out and see it for themselves, which then hopefully will foster a bit more of an interest. It's, it's, it's fun, but it'll become an obsession. This is the National Museum's Liverpool podcast. I'm content producer Ellie Field, and we, alongside our partners, Melodic Distraction Radio, will thread together stories from our collections with experiences of people in Liverpool today, exploring connections between past and present. Red Dwarf beamed onto our TV screens in the 1980s. The sci-fi comedy centers around David Lister, a low-ranking technician who wakes up from suspended animation on the Red Dwarf spaceship to find that he is the last surviving human. Surrounded by a bizarre motley crew, they travel space and get into all sorts of hijinks. It was this cult British comedy that triggered an obsession in Dr. Jackie Bell, currently an astrophysicist at Imperial College London, but maybe one day, astronaut. I think I've always been really curious about the unknown and I used to read loads of storybooks growing up, lots of adventure tales. I was a bit of a bookworm. And then when I went to school, I realised there was this whole new world of knowledge and I just soaked it up as much as I possibly could. I was the typical um, little geeky girl at school who wanted to know everything and even asked for extra homework so I could do projects at home. And I remember we were learning about space and it just really, I fell in love with just the vastness of it and the unknown of, you know, around how many planets are there, how many galaxies are there, how did the universe start, where did we all come from, are we all made of stardust? And it just really captured my imagination. And I think around the same time, I'd just started watching Red Dwarf with my dad and we used to laugh and laugh. And I was a bit young at the time. I was probably about eight or nine, maybe 10 years old when I started watching it with him. But I just remember him laughing so much. And I remember the main character, Dave Lister, being a scouser. And I thought, this is amazing. The first time I've seen a scouser on TV and the in space that's exactly what I want to do. I want to go to space. I want to make my dad proud. I want to make my dad laugh. Um, and I just want to achieve that and see the universe. Seeing a scouser in space had an impact on Jackie. She not only has aims of becoming the first non-fictional scouser in space, 
but she is passionate about making astrophysics more accessible. She is a member of Modern Muse, a charity that provides a platform for girls aged 13 to 18 to be inspired by women working in fields that are proportionally male. She's also done a TED Talk, where she tells the story of when she was little and asked at school what she wanted to become when she was older. She excitedly told her teacher and the class that she wanted to be an astronaut. The class laughed at her, and the teacher told her to be more realistic. This experience has clearly spurred Jackie on to make sure this doesn't happen to generations below her. I think that young people are exposed to it a lot more because they're on social media. Um, all of our space exploration groups, societies, um, you know, the NASA's, the ESA's, they've got all of these accounts where they can share information all the time. So you can be very much up to date with what's happening without having to, you know, tune in your radio to a specific frequency and try to find out yourself. It is all out there. So I think that's a really positive thing that kids, um, adults and, you know, people in between, they're, they're exposed to these things a lot more because then it can definitely help drive up the number of scientists, physicists, you know, future explorers and engineers that we have. I think space travel is uh, more accessible now and space exploration and this idea of, you know, becoming a scientist so that you can work in space and so you can learn more about the universe and make discoveries. Um, and I think a lot of that is you know, helped by this whole idea of commercializing space travel, um, all of the, you know, private missions that we've got now to space, where if you've got enough money, you can go, are great because it drives the costs down for, you know, our traditional space agencies and the missions that we have with NASA or the European Space Agency, for example. So I think that it's great that we've got all of this commercialization of space. But why is it so important more people study space? We are in the midst of a climate crisis. There are wars raging across the globe. Economic disparity is at an all-time high. Yet space exploration is becoming more and more popular, with the James Webb telescope images trending on Twitter whenever they are released, and celebrities going on day trips to space with Jeff Bezos. I, I mean, I'm going to be obviously quite biased, but I think it's really, really important. I mean, take, for example, some of the you know, research projects that have been carried out on the International Space Station. I think a lot of people, you know, you know, myself included in a way, we look at the planet that we're on now and we think, why are we going to space and spending millions and millions of pounds when we could be improving our planet here and we could be helping people back on Earth, getting out of poverty or with health conditions, better healthcare and all of all of these things. You know, we still have developing countries which are at risk of, of so many health concerns that you know other develop other more developed countries have, have sort of sorted out by now and so I do kind of I understand when people say like why are we spending all this money on space but actually a lot of the research a lot of the projects that have been carried out on the International Space Station have been done so to help and to support us back on Earth. So, for example, there's loads of um, experiments happening which are looking at disease, um, disease prevention, disease cures, for example, Alzheimer's, um, people suffering from bone, bone loss, but bone deterioration, um, different cancers, how our cells generate and regenerate in space. And so all of this research 
I don't think it's it's shouted about enough um, to sort of encourage more people to be into space and, and into what's happening in, in the International Space Station. But all of these things, they do come back and they have a direct impact on us on our planet in terms of our healthcare, in terms of better treatments, in terms of seeing how our, you know, our bones, our muscles, our cells act in microgravity conditions, conditions where there's so little gravity that we can almost, you know, we're floating around in space, nothing is holding us down. And how our cells change and how we change in those conditions might shed light on how we can cure or finally cure some of the cancers that are you know, untreatable so far. So, there are actually a lot of valid reasons why we need to study space. But what interests me the most is the more philosophical reasons. I have always been a fan of science fiction. I was brought up on Star Wars, Star Trek, Stargate. If it has a star in its title, chances are my family was watching it. But as a teenager, I found the concept of space, the universe, utterly terrifying. I could happily watch a fictional world of spaceships jumping to light speed, but watching any documentary about black holes and infinity triggered an existential panic. And I would frequently wonder, how do astrophysicists not get overwhelmed at the vastness before them? For me, as a theoretical particle physicist, so I started off as a mathematician um, and then obviously was interested in space and I moved into into physics as an adult. And... um, Learning about, you know, where we came from, the particles that made us, the smaller particles that make up those particles, and then getting to really, you know, how did we get here? How was the universe created? Was there a big bang? It does blow your mind. And it definitely blew my mind when I was studying to think of, okay, this is just too vast now. Even though I wasn't studying, you know, galaxies and the universe as this big massive thing, I was going smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller. And on that end of the scale, it was still massive in a sense. And, you know, that I didn't, I didn't know everything and I wouldn't even know where to start. Um, and, you know, as I said before that, who, who who doesn't like space, who doesn't find it beautiful, but actually, you know, my own mom, she'd probably kill me knowing I've said this, but my own mom does not like it at all. And I think through my own interest, she started to slowly pick it up. But that whole idea of that vastness, and it's so big, and it's, you know, with, with this tiny, tiny thing, and when, you know, when you zoom out so far, you can see that, you know, we're kind of insignificant in a way. And I think that can be quite... Um, scary for people to think about you know if you got lost in the vastness of space there's no way back so I think it can be quite scary and I love the way it's it's used in in that sense in you know scary films and um, documentaries that add a little bit of fear Um, so I think it's good in that sense but it also means that those of us who grow up as explorers who have a lot of curiosity there's going to be always something to figure out so young people now who want to get into science there's still so much more to discover which I think is is a really beautiful aspect of of space exploration. In the past couple of years something in me has shifted the absolute and utter fear has morphed into obsessive curiosity. I spent hours looking at the James Webb telescope images watching programmes about how space never ends, and I was excitedly looking forward to talking to Jackie for this episode. But why? Where does this desire to delve into the incomprehensible vastness of space come from? I actually think a lot of it comes from the way in which space humbles us as humans. Everything is so much bigger than just us, which used to scare me 
but now actually makes me feel a little relieved. My latest obsession has been the sound of the black hole, released by NASA. I would not stop talking about it for weeks. I sent it to my family group chat, played it to all my friends and colleagues, not only because it was fascinating, but because it sounded how I expected, straight out of 2001 Space Odyssey. I mean, I love when anything like that comes back from space and like, we've heard this, we've heard this, and it reminds me of, again, old movies where we're looking for aliens. So I absolutely love that. And I know I get asked all the time, you know, as a scientist or when I'm giving talks to schools, are aliens real? Do you believe in aliens? And I have to say, like, I would love there to be aliens, would absolutely love it. And I know the science shows us that, you know, it's there's slim chances, especially of finding something in our path where we'd be able to communicate with them in our lifetime. But I still cling on to that hope that I had as a little girl, that aliens are going to be real, whether they're little green men or otherwise, I don't know. But um, anything that we get back from a space where it, it plays some sort of spooky sounds, I absolutely love. And I think... You know, these are these are really great discoveries that we're making. You know, we only recently saw um, pictures of of what a, what a black hole looked like, for example. Um, you know, we theorised, well, Stephen Hawking theorised that black holes existed, but actually until that imagery and until these sounds and things are coming back, it's only just starting to be proven. And I think that, again, is a really exciting time in theoretical physics to be to be looking at black holes and to be getting these sounds from black holes and even if it does sound scary I think it's a massive sort of leap forwards in terms of our, our discoveries as, as scientists and as, as human beings. So what's next for the generations that Jackie wants to inspire? What missions and projects are beginning now that they could be working on? So for human space exploration, we've got the Artemis mission, uh, which is very, very exciting because it'll be the first time that we are going back to the moon since the 70s. And we're going to be going back there for research purposes, um, finding out more about our rocky moon, um, more about you know, how it was created, um, what the minerals are on there, um, going back and just seeing if there's anything that, we, that we've that we missed. Um, and I think that that's really, really exciting as someone who aspires to become an astronaut, that me or someone younger than me or, you know, within my generation will get to go back to the moon, something that we haven't done for 50 years. And so for human exploration, we've got the International Space Station, which is going strong um, and hopefully will continue to go strong for you know up until maybe 2028 2030 or beyond if we're lucky and so we've got all of those cool research projects happening every single day on the space station to look forward to but we've also got these trips to the moon and then we've got our amazing satellites we've got our you know the James Webb Tate James Webb Space Telescope, sorry, is just one of the amazing missions that have been launched in the past couple of years um, and that's gonna you know shed some light no pun intended, shed some light on, you know, new planets that might be very similar to our own Earth. And so I guess the big question that lots of astronomers, scientists, researchers want to know is, what else is out there? 
are there aliens out there or what we'd call aliens? Is there someone who's a little bit like E.T. wandering around looking for a new home? Or are we going to find something that's, you know, very, very much, you know, little tiny tardigrades somewhere else, which could be the very, very beginnings of life? And so I think that is what inspires me as a scientist. I think it's probably what inspires a lot of people to get into science and astronomy and astrophysics and space sciences. And so next, I think, will be crunching all of this data that comes back from the James Webb Space Telescope, looking at those images in more detail and finding which areas, which stars, which planets, which celestial bodies we want to really zone in on and start to explore. Talking to Jackie Bell truly was an absolute joy. She's so incredibly relatable and down-to-earth. No pun intended. Her reasons for wanting to become an astronaut are not to boost her own ego and conquer another galaxy or planet. She was sparked by a little British sitcom and carried on by her sheer curiosity and determination to make space exploration more accessible. I am definitely rooting for her to become the first Scouser in space because she isn't just doing it for herself. She's doing it for any little kid who said they wanted to be an astronaut and were told to be more realistic. So where to start if you're a young person interested in space? Well, many people, including Jackie Bell herself, visited the World Museum Planetarium. Toby Taylor explores the latest planetarium show to be added to the roster, The Edge of Darkness. Tucked away, on the top floor of the World Museum is a very special room. Within this room, you can explore the depths and wonder of the cosmos, or, if you prefer, simply relax under a tranquil, starry night sky. As you step inside its dimly lit walls and take your seat, an excited sense of mystery and curiosity descend as you ponder what secrets are to be revealed. Built in the Space Age era, this is the World Museum's planetarium, the longest surviving planetarium in a British museum. For over 50 years, it has immersed visitors in journeys through time and space and inspired countless generations of budding astronomers to delve deeper into the mysteries of our solar system and beyond. But at a time when our own planet is in the grips of a serious climate crisis and global economic crises rage, it begs the question, is space still relevant? The planetarium's latest show edge of darkness, which covers meteorites and asteroids from the very edges of our solar system and their research, suggested the answers to these questions, and many more, lie out there, way, way out in the very deepest depths of the galaxy. We all like a mystery and we all want to solve these mysteries. We've mapped out lots of the universe and we know a lot about it, but the more we map out, the more we find out, the less we realise that we know. That's Patrick the planetarium's education officer. His passion for space and astronomy began at a young age when his grandmother took him stargazing on a cold winter's night. Looking up at the different stars and constellations, an obsession was born. If you've ever looked up at a night sky and seen the moon or constellations of stars whose strange patterns you're unable to decipher and felt pangs of curiosity and intrigue, then you're not alone. Curiosity for the stars the solar system, space, and our place within them are characteristics and inclinations that have been fundamental to humanity throughout our existence. As far back as the earliest civilizations, there's been an innate fascination with space. 
it is one of those unifying subjects of study that brings people together across generations. It's something that everybody can see. Everybody can look at the stars, look at the moon, look at the planets, and you can see it. And especially for primitive man, before you know, we developed technology and a better understanding of what was going on, we had no idea what those bright lights out there were. Um, some civilizations thought there were campfires for other tribes and other peoples, that, you know, and they, but they couldn't get to them. It was quite annoying. Fostered by visits to his local planetarium, Patrick became a keen astronomer and has gone on to become a vital part of the team at the World Museum's planetarium. It's just something that it, it takes you out of yourself. I suppose the best way of explaining it is uh, there's a, a famous astronomer called Carl Sagan, and he's an American, who's a, a popularizer of astronomy, very, very clever man. And he did a series called Cosmos in the 1980s. It was a groundbreaking series. It was about the history of astronomy, and it was superb. And one of the things that he said was that when you look at the universe, well, what we found is that we're, everything, everything that we're looking at now in this room, in, in people's homes, everything here comes from the creation of the solar system. Everything is from that cloud of gas and dust that created the solar system. That cloud of gas and dust came from earlier generations of stars. If there hadn't been those stars, we wouldn't be here. But we are, so those generation stars happened. And what it means is that we're made of the stuff that the stars are made of. It's all made of star stuff. And what we are, in a sense, according to was the way Carl Sagan put it, was that we're the universe looking at itself, trying to understand itself because we're made from the same stuff as the universe. So it's a connection between us and the vastness of space, which is also a very personal and intimate connection as well, because we are that same material that that nebula 20,000 light years away is made from with the same stuff that's made, that the sun's made from, that Pluto's made from. You know, the same building blocks have created us as created them. So I think that's the beauty of space. It, it, connects, it connects us to something much bigger than we are, much bigger than any of the problems we have on the Earth. And hopefully it'll give you, well, it gives me, but hopefully it'll give other people a sense of perspective that, you know, we're tiny little, little, little tiny creatures on a tiny little rock in a vast ocean of emptiness and chaos. And yet we can look out and begin to understand what's going on out there. So I think that's pretty cool. Perhaps one aspect of space's great appeal is that there is so much of it to study. Planets, comets, black holes, there are countless areas still shrouded in mystery. Edge of Darkness, the planetarian's new film, looks at comets and meteors from deep space and the missions that have explored them. But given how much of space remains unexplored, unmapped, and not yet understood, why is it important to investigate these facets of the cosmos over others? What secrets can these objects possibly reveal? The most interesting thing about looking at meteors and comets is that if you can get them from deep in space where they've not been affected by coming close to the sun or anything, you're getting pieces of material from the very start of the solar system. So then if you go to the edge of the solar system, so you go to Pluto, the light there takes four and a half hours to travel. So we're seeing it as it was four and a half hours ago. You go to the nearest star and you're seeing it as it was four years ago. So it's... And the further away you go, the further back in time you're looking. So that, which is really good, because that means we can see right to the beginning of the universe and work out how it, how it started, what, what were the, the mechanics of creating the universe. So if you can get that material, you can find out how the solar system began, what the materials were, how much of it there was, and why did it form the way that it formed, how can we, and how we ended up here as well. So if we can investigate asteroids, comets, 
we learn about our history, the history of our solar system, and then it helps us then look at other solar systems, see how they form, see if they form the same way, and if they don't, maybe our ideas are wrong, or maybe they're doing something differently for a different reason. So it's all about learning about where our place is and how we got to be here, really. It's clear that there is still much to glean from the outer regions of the cosmos. But while there is much to learn from this, would humanity's priorities be better placed searching for answers for questions closer to home? The biggest of these, humanity's response to the ever-worsening effects of the climate crisis, is a question that some feel deserves more attention than those of an otherworldly persuasion. The answer to this revolves around our planet's interaction with extraterrestrial objects from the edges of darkness. The UFOs in question are objects such as comets, asteroids, or meteors, which regularly impact on Earth, rather than confused life forms looking to phone home, despite what Steven Spielberg might have you believe. They can potentially cause significant damage to our planet, depending on their size. Just ask the dinosaurs. One of the things that the um, the Edge of Darkness shows is that we're looking for other potentially hazardous objects coming to to the Earth. The only way to find out how to deal with them is by visiting them, visiting asteroids, visiting comets, seeing what they're like, and then working out, well, okay, so if an asteroid's coming towards us, what can we do about it? How can we stop it from hitting us? Because we've had a few near misses where asteroids have just bounced off the, 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 uh, the atmosphere and gone off back into space, so we've been very lucky. But then we've had some really big explosions. For example, in uh, Tunguska in Siberia, 1910, massive uh, asteroid exploded over the, the, the tundra in Siberia and blew down trees for hundreds of kilometres. It was just a massive explosion. So we want to know what these asteroids are like how and how we're going to, to stop them from hitting us. So one of the missions is called DART. It's a NASA mission and it's actually going to um, hit a, a, an asteroid. This asteroid, it's got a, it's got a moon and they're going to hit this DART satellite into the moon to see what happens, to see one of the big ideas of if there's something coming to us, try and deflect it away from us, send it off on a different path. So we're going to see when they impact this little moon, if it'll work and what, what, what effect it'll have. It may not, I mean, it's only a small craft and a small moon, so it may not do anything, but if it doesn't do anything, we've learned something. So even if, if, if the mission fails, it's failed, but you've learned something by that failure. So... It's that kind of thing. That's one of the reasons we wanted to show the show is because it's about things that have affected the Earth in the past could affect us again in the future. As Edge of Darkness demonstrates, space exploration and the technologies needed for it are crucial tools in the fight to protect the planet from extraterrestrial challenges. Missions such as DART, which successfully altered an asteroid's orbit, provide foundational knowledge for later missions that could save the world. It's important that more people take an interest in space, and in particular the unexplored realms at the very boundaries of our solar system, as it could foster a passion that leads to the next big discovery that helps solve some of our planet's greatest difficulties. So how do you do that? The answer may be a lot closer to home than you think. Go out and do some stargazing. Even though if you're living in the town centre, it's not great because the light pollution wipes out so many of the stars. You can still watch the moon cycles. You can still see it moving across the sky. You can look at the planets and watch them moving across the sky. And if you get a, just a little pair of binoculars, that's all you need. And you can see the moons of Jupiter. And you can watch them going around, around the planet. So you can step in the footsteps of previous scientists by just going out yourself using a pair of binoculars and looking at a, something like Jupiter. Talking about great astronomers, Galileo, he, when he invented a telescope, or when he first pointed at Jupiter, he saw those little dots of light 
orbiting the orbiting Jupiter, he helped realize then that the Earth wasn't at the center of the, the solar system. So yeah, just go out and do it. And you, you don't have to delve into all the, the complicated physics and maths of it. You can if you want to, and it's fascinating, great fun. But you don't have to. You know, you just you can just go out and enjoy an evening under the stars. Even just take a blanket out and go out and have a look for meteors zooming across the sky. We have meteor showers across the year. We just had a really nice one in August, the, the Perseids. And it's always a nice time to go out, even though it's quite light, the sky. You know, it's nice and warm, so you don't get too cold. And you can often see lots of meteors just flashing across the sky. So something like that's really, really nice to do as well. So yeah, just go out and do it, visit a planetarium. Not necessarily ours, but any around the country. One of the best things about planetarium is that you can show people the night sky. So you can show them the star patterns, the constellations. Then they can go out and see it for themselves, which then hopefully will foster a bit more of an interest. It's, it's, it's fun, but it'll become an obsession. I hope this episode has sparked some curiosity in you. Space can definitely feel overwhelming and at times scary, but I believe the more we understand about the galaxy we are a part of, the more we can understand ourselves on Earth. And it may feel pointless to understand something that in our own lifetimes we may never experience ourselves. But as Jackie and Patrick have said, space is definitely becoming more accessible to the generations that follow. Thanks for listening to the National Museum's Liverpool podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe for more stories across our varied collections. From Liverpool film and art as a mental health aid to heroes on the Mersey and rebels in music, you can find all of our episodes wherever you listen to your podcasts.